I'm Greg Columbus. Our guest this week on Veterans Chronicles is retired U.S. Navy SEAL Jack Carr. Lieutenant Commander Carr spent 20 years as a SEAL and served this nation all around the world. He is also the author of the new book, True Believer, which is a novel that is based on real-life events during his time in uniform. And Jack, thanks very much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. I sincerely appreciate it. Well, let's start at the beginning of your story. Where were you born and raised? Yeah, so Northern California, and uh, like right off the bat, I knew I was going to go into the military. There was never any question about that. And uh, the tie-in is that my grandfather was killed in World War II. He was a Corsair pilot, which is, uh, for those listening, that's the, the plane with the gold wings that used to fly off carriers in World War II and in Korea. Um, but he was killed off Okinawa in 1945, like near the end of the war when two kamikazes his aircraft carrier and almost sunk it. Um, but he was killed in that first, uh, on that first hit. And I grew up with his, uh, his medals, the silk maps they used to give aviators back then, um, pictures of him and his squadron, him by his plane, that sort of thing. And then it didn't hurt that Black Sea Squadron was on TV at the time with, as I was growing up, starring Robert Conrad, for those that remember, uh, back in the day. And a uh, great TV show, especially to a you know, seven, eight, nine-year-old kid. And uh, so I knew I was going in the military. And I just didn't know exactly what I was going to do in the military until I found out about SEALs. And then from then on in, it was uh, my, my sights were focused on that goal. When did you find out about the SEALs? My dad used to watch football on Sundays, of course. Then we had about four channels, um, ABC, CBS, NBC. And then there was one outlier channel that always seemed to be playing some sort of a World War II war movie. On, uh, on Sundays. So um, as I suffered through watching football at the commercials, my dad would say, go, and he'd look at his watch, and I'd have two minutes to run up, because I was a remote control back then, and turn the <laughs> channel to the movie, and I'd just sit there and just watch whatever movie was playing, and they'd say, turn it back, and I'd turn it back after those two minutes on his watch to lapse, and we'd watch football again until the next commercial. Um, and one of those was The Frogman, and it was an old black and white movie, and showed these guys uh, swimming up over the beach, and blowing up obstacles in advance of conventional force landings. And I was just kind of enthralled with these guys and asked my dad who they were. And he said, those are frogmen. And I said, okay, what, is, what does that mean? That's the name of the movie. Uh, and he said, ask your mother. Quit, quit bugging me. I got football to watch. So uh, when I asked my mom, and she was a librarian at the time. She still is. Um, and so we grew up surrounded by books. But being a librarian, she took every opportunity possible to take us down to the library, show us how to do research, use the Dewey Decimal System, um, and just really encourage us to, to read and research and learn. Um, so it was a very natural thing for us to do. So in the early 80s, we went down to the library and did a little research, and there was hardly anything written about SEALs back then. You could probably read it all in an hour. Uh, today, obviously, you just type it into the Google search bar, and you, you, you'll never find the end of it. But back then, you could find the end. Um, There's a couple mentions in books and a couple magazine articles, but that was really about it. And my takeaway was that, hey, this is some of the toughest training ever devised by a modern military. And uh, these few sentences that, uh, that I found in this research are saying that these guys are some of the most elite, uh, elite special operators on the planet. So uh, I'm in. So from age seven, they had me. And uh, and back then, like I said, there was hardly anything written in nonfiction. There was a couple things. But uh, I naturally gravitated towards novels uh, in the thriller space that had protagonists with backgrounds that I wanted to have one day. So these authors like Tom Clancy, David Morrell, Nelson DeMille, uh, A.J. Quinnell, J.C. Pollock, Mark Olden, these guys always had protagonists that – had backgrounds typically in Vietnam at that point, uh, usually in special operations or from intelligence agencies. Um, but those were the protagonists, and that's where, where, uh, where I got a lot of the, the background um, uh, because you just didn't have that uh, 
information out there in the nonfiction space yet. And fortunately, we went along, more books came out, more magazine articles came out about seals, and we just started compiling. And, and of course, when the internet hit, uh, then <laughs> then you have your unending supply of info. But uh, just got my, my sights on that goal and went in in, uh, in 1996. 1996. And uh, how soon did you head to BUDS or SEALS training? Yeah, right away. So there's a program then called the Dive Fairer Program. And uh, what it did was guarantee you the chance to try out in boot camp uh, if you signed on for six years. So, of course, I jumped at that opportunity. And uh, what I didn't realize is that everyone has the opportunity to try out in boot camp. Uh, so I did that, passed my test, and back then you had to do a source rating. So for everyone else, that's like an MOS. Um, and you'd have to go to that school first because they figured that 80% of these people are not going to make it through through BUDS, through SEAL training. Um, so we're going to have them trained up ahead of time so as soon as they quit, uh, they can go to the fleet and serve the, the Navy in that in that capacity. So, so I went to intelligence school, which I think was like 16 weeks back then in uh, Danbeck, Virginia, and then went right to, to BUDS. So I showed up there in January of uh, 97. Uh, so it was a quick stop boot camp, intel school, right to BUDS, and then uh, went through BUDS and got to my first SEAL team in October of 97. And then it was kind of off to the races there. But it wasn't like we thought. Like We all thought we were going to show up at our first SEAL team's and uh, we were going to be issued these pagers and uh, like we're jetting off around the world to uh, do these secret missions and all that sort of thing. And that, that was not the case. Uh, we showed up at our first SEAL teams in 97 and uh, we handed mops and said, uh, you know, mop the floor, <laughs> clean that bathroom, paint that wall, change that light bulb. So it wasn't quite what we thought it was going to be because our job was then and uh, continues to be to be prepared to go to war. And then, of course, September 11th happened and that, that call came in and changed uh, changed the world for everyone. Well, let's back up just a little bit because uh, when we talk to Navy SEALs, we always have to talk a little bit about the training. Now, you mentioned a moment ago that you'd wanted to be a SEAL since you were seven, so you could mentally prepare and perhaps research what it takes to, to get through the training. How did your expectations compare to the real thing? Right. So it was, uh, you know, I, I was about as prepared as one could be in uh, 1997 to show up there, having wanted to do it my whole life and kind of doing uh, running and working out and just doing, just being focused and studying the military and studying warfare and uh, just doing everything I could to prepare myself for BUDS. Um, and I think that helped in that I couldn't quit and that I could never, have never be able to show my face at home having told everyone I was going to be a SEAL since I was seven. Uh, I couldn't very well show my face at home ever again if I quit. So uh, so that helped getting through. But the other thing that really helped was that I put things in perspective in that as we were in hell week, arms linked up in the surf zone, people quitting in droves on the edge of hypothermia, all that stuff. Um, I thought back to the guys that stormed the beaches at Normandy, the guys at Iwo Jima, the guys that really did. I mean, they had it a lot worse, obviously, than uh, than some kid on the beach in Coronado, California, getting yelled at and uh, you know going through butts. So I really put things in perspective by thinking of those guys and really everyone from the inception of this country to today uh, that gave me the option and opportunity to choose to be there on that beach testing myself and uh, seeing if I had what it took to uh, to make it into the the ranks of the SEAL team. So um, so I really thought back about those guys and that that helped me a ton. Um, and I think a lot of people didn't do that or didn't keep it in its proper perspective. And, um, and or maybe they just don't like the cold water and they went and then uh, they did quit in droves. We're talking with Jack Carr. He is a retired U.S. Navy SEAL. He is also the author of the brand new novel, True Believer. Jack, you mentioned just a moment ago that obviously everything changed on 9-11. At that time, you're a member of, of SEAL Team 5. What did that mean for you in terms Correct. of where you went and what you did? 
Right. So I was on my second deployment. So I had one deployment that was pre-September 11th. So with that, that paradigm, with that model that we'd really had since the end of Vietnam, uh, we hadn't really been in sustained combat since, since the end of Vietnam. We had flashpoints that, uh, Brother Special Operations Forces at Desert One, um, at, at Grenada, at Panama, Mogadishu, but we hadn't been in sustained combat since then. So it was a, a different model. September 11th hit, and uh, we really weren't prepared for it as a military, uh, as a nation, and we had to adapt very quickly. But I was in my second week of my second deployment, and we were in Guam at the time, and phones start ringing up and down the hallway because uh, of the time difference. It's about midnight. And uh, we all went downstairs to the basement where we had the only TV and we watched the Twin Towers fall on TV. And it was not long after that we were on planes to the Middle East and Michael soon thought we were going right into Afghanistan. And uh, so we were all, uh, we were fired up and ready as much as we could be anyway to, to get in there and get in the fight. That's where we wanted to be. Um, but what we ended up doing is doing the shipboarding operations that Team 3 had been doing. And then Team 3 went into Afghanistan with that first push. So um, before September 11th, shipboarding was kind of the only game in town. And that uh, was uh, enforcing the oil embargo uh, against Iraq, the UN oil embargo. So you'd, you'd board these ships that would leave Iraq and take a hard left for Iranian waters and you had to take those ships down and, and uh, guide them in, back into international waters from a prize crew, someone that knew what they were doing, how to drive one of these big class three tankers, could jump on board and um, safely moor them. And uh, and then from there, they take off the oil, figure out what they were going to do with the ship. And, and, and But our job was to, to take those things down. Uh, so we did that. Wanted to go to Afghanistan. And at the time, we thought we were going to miss it. Everybody in the SEAL community Special operations community thought that if they weren't there going in on that first push into Afghanistan, they were going to miss the war. So all that training, everything we wanted to do to serve the country and defend the nation, we were not going to be able to do because we weren't in that first push. And then here we are now creeping up on 20 years later. So those, uh, those fears were unfounded. The shipboarding that you had to do, were most uh, crews compliant or did a lot of them put up a fuss? No, they were fairly compliant. Um, they'd uh, cut all the ladders everywhere, so you had to really do some work to get in there. They'd, they'd weld the doors shut. They'd weld uh, metal over the windows. So they made it as difficult as possible to get in those things. So it wasn't just as easy as hopping on board and turning it around. Um, but it, so it was interesting. It was kind of like I equated to a police officer that pulls over a car in the middle of the night on a lonely, dark stretch of road and doesn't know what uh, what he or she is walking up on. So that's kind of how these were. Uh, usually they take off in bad weather, uh, so you're bouncing around out there in the dark, in horrible weather, making these, uh, uh, they put barbed wire across the deck so you couldn't come in in the helos and throw the throw the ropes out to fast rope because that would foul the ropes. Um, so you couldn't do that. So you really had to come in um, from the sea. So uh, that's what that's what we did. And it was the only time I did it in my, uh, in my time in uniform. So I'm actually uh, glad that I got to do it then and have that experience. Soon after that, I, I went, uh, I returned from that deployment, uh, went to officer candidate school, uh, which is another three months of doing everything we did in boot camp, um, <laughs> holding underwear, folding t-shirts, making our bed. Uh, everybody that's been through either one knows that they're pretty much exactly the same. Uh, and then right back to the SEAL teams. And soon thereafter, I found myself uh, in Afghanistan. And uh, so, so fairly early on, that would be 2003. So we're still learning over there at the time. But I was with some guys that had been on that first push into Afghanistan. So I was just soaking in the lessons learned from them as we uh, really did uh, direct action missions at that point. And then came back and went to uh, Iraq and then Iraq again and then Iraq again. So it was a good, uh, it was a good run there for a while. It was a good 20-year run. Jack, let's pause right there. We'll come back with uh, much more of your story. We're talking with Jack Carr, retired U.S. Navy Lieutenant Commander, U.S. Navy SEAL, and now published author. 
Talk much more about all those things still to come on Veterans Chronicles. This is Veterans Chronicles. I'm Greg Corumbus, honored to be joined today by retired U.S. Navy Lieutenant Commander Jack Carr, retired U.S. Navy SEAL, also a published author. He's on his second novel now. The first one uh, did very well, and now True Believer is also available as the latest in his series. And so, uh, Jack, when we left off, you had talked about how in 2003 you headed to Afghanistan. Pick up the story there, please. Yeah, so it was a good uh, good deployment over there, really learned a ton, obviously. So I've been studying this my, my whole life, um, had the shipboarding experience um, right after September 11th, and then now finally in Afghanistan. And you know, at the time, I thought that was late to get there in 2003. Uh, obviously, that's not the case because guys are still going and uh, returning from that uh, place uh, to this day, and, and will probably do so well into the future. So um, yeah, the fear of missing it out, missing out on it was uh, was unfounded, but um, yeah, learned a ton over there, uh, and then came right back and took those experiences uh, and brought back some lessons learned to the guys I'd then be going to Iraq with. So, uh, 2004, it was off to Iraq, um, and 2005, back to Iraq. 2006, the same thing. So it was a uh, it was a good run there, especially, and it was a very formative time for us in the in SEAL teams and special operations and for the military in general, kind of figuring out um, how you one well defeat an insurgency um, and uh, and what, what that what that looks like and what does victory look like. Uh, the country had to figure that out too, uh, and we still haven't quite figured that out. Let's talk about some of the things you did in those uh, deployments. Uh, first of all, I see from even on the first uh, SEAL team you were on that uh, you were very much involved in sniper units. Um, talk about right. the the training involved for that and what it's like to go from training as a sniper to actually doing it. Being a sniper is something I wanted to do also since I was a little kid, and I was cemented probably through uh, reading the Bob Lee Swagger novels by Stephen Hunter. Uh, as a Marine sniper is his protagonist from Vietnam. Uh, the movie Shooter is based on that, kind of a modern adaptation. But uh, I always knew I wanted to be a sniper. And after that first platoon, as an enlisted guy, I, uh, I went to the Naval Special Warfare Sniper School, so our SEAL sniper school, which I think was about 73 days. Um, and used a variety of, of different platforms. They use different ones today, obviously, because I went through in 2000. And pre-September 11th, we were still using those Vietnam tactics. So essentially... You know, hunting rifles with uh, with a scope, <laughs> and uh, using the lessons learned from the guys uh, in Vietnam, uh, from the, the stocking and how we did our shots. A lot more of an art back then, I would say. Uh, after September 11th, that changed quite a bit, and now there's a lot more science to it. It's kind of a blending of the art and the science and the technology that uh, that really took off because of September 11th and all the lessons learned that we brought home from the battlefield and the technology that uh, that came out along the way. Um, so you can really take some precise shots now uh, based more on the science of shooting uh, rather than the art when I went through. So a little different. But uh, because I had that enlisted experience as a sniper, um, when I became an officer, I was still very junior. We started out at the, the bottom again as an 01. And, uh, and which was great. I love that. Um, and when a certain a campaign kicked off in Najaf, Iraq, to take that city back over from what was called the Cheshamadi militia, so it's Muqtada al-Sadr's 
militia for people that uh, remember the, the what was called the Mahdi Army back then. That was really their stronghold in the Jaffa in 2004. So um, because I had that sniper experience, uh, they were looking for snipers and had to put together a sniper team. And what did that look like in support of a conventional force, in this case, the T-7 Cav uh, out of Texas that really ran that that campaign uh, that ended up being, I think, about two weeks. There's a great book called uh, Battle for the City of the Dead. Um, but really that two weeks, um, and I was there for 11 days of it, that was really the, the pitched street battle, urban warfare the entire time. Um, and brought a sniper team in there, and some of the other some of the other services though. So we had Army Special Forces snipers on the, on one side of the city. We had Marine Marsoft Get One snipers on another portion of the city. We had the Grom, which are the Polish Special Operations Forces, in another section, and then my field sniper team had another. So we all worked together to support 27 Cav as they move forward with uh, with infantry, with uh, with the Bradleys, with the, the Abrams, and took that city back really street by street, block by block. And uh, so that was a very formative time for me. And I think the, the first time that I really had been engaged in something uh, that looked very similar to, to the to the movies that I watched in, in World War II, of World War II growing up. Um, and there was no, what we did up to that point was really, you go out, you have a target package, you build a pattern of life on someone, um, you make sure it's the right person you're going after, and then you go and you hit them at uh, usually at home, and then come back, turn them over to someone for interrogation, get more intelligence, and go back out and do it again. Uh, this was different. This was just a straight-up street fight. This was just urban warfare pushing an enemy into what ended up being the Imam Ali Mosque in Old Town Najaf. And uh, we had them all in there at the end of that campaign. And then uh, there was a, uh, a truce negotiated with the interim Iraqi government. So we actually had to stop fighting at the end, and uh, they... I don't think they call it a surrender, but they came out, gave up their weapons to the uh, uh, Iraqi National Guard, I think, and uh, they were allowed to, to go free to fight another day. I distinctly remember uh, that in Najaf and the standoff that uh, ensued over the mosque there. Uh, we're talking with Lieutenant Commander Jack Carr, U.S. Navy retired, retired U.S. Navy SEAL. He's a published author. The new novel is True Believer. We'll have much more about his time in uniform as well as how he became a published author, but I think you've gotten some of the clues already, given how much you love to read uh, military-related novels, even as a child. So we'll get into all of that and much more still to come on Veterans Chronicles. This is Veterans Chronicles. I'm Greg Corumbus. Our guest this week is retired U.S. Navy SEAL Jack Carr, retired U.S. Navy Lieutenant Commander, and he's now a published author. The latest novel is True Believer. And Jack, we were just talking about your tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, and I know among many other things that you did uh, in Iraq, uh, you and your fellow special operators uh, ended up capturing more than 65 high-value terrorist leaders in places like Ramadi, Mosul, and, and, and Baghdad. The fact that you captured a bunch of them intrigues me. Does that mean most of them were willing to surrender when they were cornered, or is there a special way to convince them to do that when their initial instinct is either to take their own life or to try and shoot their way out of the problem? Well, it's the, uh, the international language of the M4 in the face uh, in the middle of the night. So that's, uh, that usually does the job. But, yeah, you have to be very careful. The enemy is always adapting to us. We're always adapting to the enemy. They're watching what we're doing all the time and figuring out what uh, what they can do to, to get an advantage over us, lure us in someplace. Um, so the, the house-born IEDs, I didn't have to deal with that, but it became a, a big issue for other elements out there. Um, so it's uh, it, it's a it's, it's it's a very complex 
type of scenario, especially in the uh, in, when you're when you're fighting someone for so long and they have time to study you and time to adapt, um, and, the, and you're part of a big bureaucracy of which they are not. So typically, the enemy can adapt a little bit faster than we can uh, as a military in general. Now, in special operations, you can do it a little faster, but um, but that, that's really the ticket is doing it uh, adapting faster than your enemy. Um, but yeah, it was a good run, good run there. Uh, I've got to bring back a lot of the lessons learned from that Najaf campaign. Uh, uh, back home after it was all all done, the workhorse of that really became what uh, some call the SR25. We call it the uh, the Mark 11 weapon system, so an auto loading 7.62 weapon system um, because you could clear houses with it, fight street to street with it, and then take elevated positions with it in buildings as well and use it as a sniper weapons platform. So it uh, it really became the workhorse for us out there. Um, and every every deployment was a little different. The, uh, the the situation on the ground had changed uh, just a, just a little bit each time. So it, uh, it was almost going. It wasn't like going to a new country, but the country definitely had uh, almost a different personality each time you showed up there uh, after you were away for six months, eight months, a year, whatever it was, and then then came back into it. So the next one was a lot more snipe of. Uh, uh, in Ramadi, was sniper operations, typically with using some Iraqi snipers with us that we were training up at the time, so partner-type operations. Things had shifted from unilater- unilaterally hitting targets to uh, to bring in Iraqis with us that we trained up with, that we partnered with. Um, and then I was uh, detailed over to what can best be described as a, another government agency for a little bit. And it was events during that deployment and during that time frame that, uh, that really spurred the idea for True Believer, my second novel. Uh, it was around the time of the Golden Mosque bombing, for those that remember that one. It really brought the Sunni-Shia rift to the forefront and threatened to rip the country even further apart than it already was. And I was working with an Iraqi officer at the time that was really head and shoulders above his peers as far as tactical battlefield leadership. Just a great guy. We had some interesting times there in Baghdad 2006. Um, years later, I got word that he disappeared. And I thought, you know, what if I was to make this a lot more interesting, have him resurface in Europe, having been trained by our intelligence agencies and by, uh, by the military, and uh, taking those skills, disgruntled with the fact that the U.S. left at the end of 2011, and is now taking those and applying them against the Western world. So that's really where the action kicks off in my second novel. That's a fantastic premise, and we'll get to that in just a second. But before we leave your combat experience, I see here you are the recipient of five bronze stars. What can you tell us about at least one of those incidents that uh, earned you such recognition? Yeah, I got to ask you where you found that out because I, I never tell anybody that. Um, <laughs> probably my publicist. Uh, but uh, yeah, you know, two of them were really mean something to me. Uh, the others are kind of don't. Uh, but uh, campaign for Najaf, and then working with that other government agency. So those were probably the two most formative times of uh, my 20 years in uniform. Uh, the most intense, where I learned the most. Um, so those uh, the the two that have the uh, the V device are the really the the only two that mean I don't know I don't like talking about metals too much sorry that's okay <laughs> that's okay we'll transition to one other thing before we get to the book and that's that uh, less than twenty years after going through buds training after you had spent a lot of time overseas. They brought you back as an operations officer and eventually lieutenant commander at the Naval Special Warfare Training Center, which is fancy for saying you led the daily operations of the SEALs training. What was that like after having gone through it? Right. So after my last deployment to Iraq, it was very evident that uh, it was time to time to get out. I would have 
moved on if I stayed in to get that 05 rank and be a CEO of a team. And these days as a CEO of a team or as an 05, you're really not tactically maneuvering guys on the battlefield anymore, which is what I came in to do is to do that, to be in the fight. Um, it was a good 20 year run, but, uh, but it was time to get out and, and take care of my family. So um, it was time for that operations officer job. And I'd never had a, a shore duty, they call it. So off I went to Bud's and, uh, when, when you say and when the description of the job is that you run the, the training, it's really kind of a misnomer because the instructors are out there, the phases are out there that are really run. They have an, they have an officer in each phase, but really it's the senior senior enlisted guys and the and the instructors that are out there um, doing it essentially at the at we would call the tactical level that are uh, mentoring and uh, and training and uh, testing these SEAL candidates as they go through buds. So uh, you know, I just kind of. Uh, uh, I just kind of guided the uh, the chaos, I guess you'd say. But uh, it was interesting to see it from the other side. Interesting to see how we from the other side. Interesting to to see how that works. Interesting to see how the efforts that the organization was making to try to pick the right candidates to come in the front door, so we can get the best people possible out the back door. So um, back in, in my day, it was really fit. It was all based on physical um, requirements and. Now we're trying to figure out, hey, what are, what are those attributes that we're really looking for? Uh, that mental courage, that uh, uh, that moral courage, uh, what we call team ability. It was not really a word, but we made it up because we needed to figure out what to call it. Um, it means like working well with others as part of this, this this team to aggressively solve problems on the battlefield. So now we use a lot more of that technology uh, in peer-to-peer reviews and really test for character along the way, too. So um, you can get the fastest and the strongest guy going through buds, but he might not have that character that you're looking for. So how do you do that? And uh, we got a lot of lessons learned from the uh, the Israelis on how to do that because they do a, a very good job of testing for character in their special operations programs. Um, so we started to incorporate some of those into buds and uh, and test for uh, the character that we're looking for as well. So after your retirement, you eventually took up writing. How quickly did you do that? And how immediately did you know where you wanted to take these novels? I wanted to write since I was a little kid. At the same time that I wanted to learn that I wanted to be a SEAL, I also wanted to write because I was reading those guys I mentioned earlier in the 80s that uh, had those protagonists whose backgrounds I wanted one day. So I knew that after my time in the military, then I would write. And so I was very fortunate in that I knew exactly what I wanted to do next. I didn't have to search for that uh, for that next uh, profession. A lot of guys have to search for it. So I was fortunate and then I did not. And then I had my next mission in life also was to take care of my family. So coupling those two things, uh, I dove into writing that last year that I was in the military because for those that have been in, they know that uh, when you drop your papers to get out, you'll go in a different pile. And then your your uh, your job essentially becomes to figure out how to get out of this gigantic bureaucracy, uh, dental appointments and medical appointments and classes and signatures and everything else that goes along with uh, with leaving the military. So uh, point being, I finally had some time on my hands to take a breath. And uh, that's when I started started writing. Uh, but I always knew I wanted to do it. And those guys I read as a, as a kid and continued to read um, up through my time in the military really gave me a foundation. And they became my first professors in the art of storytelling. And then coupled with my academic study of terrorism, insurgencies, warfare, uh, while I was in the teams, plus the experience from the from combat on the ground in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, really kind of all, and it didn't plan this out like that, but it we kind of came together at the right time and place as I started writing and really added credibility uh, to the novels, authenticity to the novels, which I think is why they've been resonating with people. Because even though it's 100% fiction, uh, the feelings that the protagonists have, who, and the protagonist is a former Navy SEAL sniper who becomes an officer. <laughs> uh, so background that's uh, similar to mine, 
but uh, the feelings that he has in the story come from real world experiences. And I just take those emotions and uh, feelings from what happened downrange and I apply those to a fictional narrative. So it ended up being a, a very therapeutic experience. And I think the reader recognizes that the, those feelings come from a real place. And I think that's the big difference here, as, as you've explained, is because this is a pretty popular genre right now in a number of different ways. A lot of talented writers, some who have military experience and some who don't. So the real life experience uh, rings really true, particularly those who, who have served in the military, I would imagine. Yeah, I get a lot of notes, a lot of emails, uh, a lot of direct messages on uh, the social media channels, which was something that I never even touched in the military, so I had to, to figure out as I started this venture. But uh, it seems to really be resonating with people, and when they reach out and let me know that, uh, that it really touched a chord with them, uh, it really means a lot to me. Talk about how it's been therapeutic. You use that word. Is it just a matter of getting out to the general public what you kind of want them to know about life as a SEAL or a sniper or a special operator? Or were there certain things you dealt with that were difficult from your days in uniform once you uh, became a civilian? I was very fortunate in that uh, what happened to be what things I was involved with downrange went very well. And you can make all the right decisions on paper if you were looking at something back here in the States and, and kind of uh, using a sand table or something to work through a, a problem set or a mission. Uh, you could make all the right decisions like that, and things can still go south because of well, Murphy's Law is going to rear, rear its head. Um, other side of that, you can make all of what would be the wrong, quote-unquote, decisions uh, if you're doing it on a sand table or doing it academically back in a classroom. Uh, and things can turn out okay um, because of, well, luck, and Murphy didn't rear his head that day. Um, so it's a very interesting uh an, an interesting thing to be a part of uh, is the tactical battlefield leadership standpoint. standpoint. So uh, luckily mine, mine all worked out for whatever reason. Um, and just being able to, to take that, and it's not, I don't really call it a stress because it's your job. It's just what you do and, uh, and you want to do it and you want to aggressively solve these problems. Um, but just taking the emotions behind doing that, um, how it feels to come home from a deployment like that, how it feels to return to base after being in an ambush or being in a, uh, firefighter or whatever it may be, um, dealing with bureaucracy, uh, both downrange and at home, uh, and the feelings behind that. Uh, so all those things, just taking all those emotions and being able to tap into those and apply them in a positive way going forward. So not just remembering them or not just putting them in a journal for personal use or maybe for your kids one day or whatever it is, but uh, to use them for something that I wanted to do my entire life and use them in a positive way like that, that's what I mean by, by being very therapeutic. Just a few minutes left in our conversation with uh, retired U.S. Navy SEAL Jack Carr, retired U.S. Navy Lieutenant Commander and author most recently of True Believer, which is available pretty much anywhere you can ever think about buying books, certainly online. And uh, Jack, uh, one thing I want to get your thoughts on, because you mentioned it a few times in our conversation here, is lessons learned, things you learned on the battlefield as a sniper, as a special operator, uh, things that you took back to training uh, in terms of the SEALs and, and elsewhere uh, to make the military more modern and, and more efficient. Anything that uh, you believe the military needs to still pursue in order to best learn the lessons from what you and your uh, fellow SEALs went through? Well, there's a lot. We've been at war for almost 20 years now. So 
Um, you can learn things at the strategic level, obviously. I mean, there were some huge missteps in Iraq early on with disbanding the Iraqi army and debathification, which means essentially you had to build an army from the ground up and build a new government from the ground up while you've uh, essentially given jobs to the insurgency. Uh, so there's some things that happened at strategic levels that had we made similar type decisions at a tactical level, uh, we probably would have all been fired and, and sent home. Um, so there, there's a lot that we can learn at all these different levels. But uh, what I for tactical level and for things that apply not just on the battlefield, but in business or uh, even in, in uh, personal relationships with families um, are, are things that I passed on that I got from my first commanding officer at SEAL Team 2 who spent the first year after uh, 9-11 deployed to Afghanistan. So now he's in the thick of it and he's in that first year of sustained combat operations. So the first time we've been doing that since Vietnam. And uh, he brought some lessons learned back to us, uh, four of them. And uh, he passed them on to us and made us memorize them. And I've passed them on to everybody that I've worked with ever since. And they're, they're very simple, which is great. Because um, when everything goes chaotic, you can take a breath and you can fall back to these and, uh, and make some logical decisions. So he said, one, always improve your fighting position. Two, exploit all technical and tactical advantages. Three, push SA, which is a fancy military way of saying information, but it means situational awareness. So push situational awareness, both up and down the chain of command. And fourth, and this is the most important to me, he said, in the absence of orders or direction on the battlefield, take charge and lead. So those are things that uh, find their way also into the pages of these fictional thrillers that I'm writing uh, and things that I, that I think about as I go through my life. So um, I'll never be able to thank him enough. And I, I would thank him by name, but I didn't ask him if I could have ahead of time. But uh, he's a great guy, and, and he's, he's still in it. It's a very senior level right now. Excellent. Well, I'm sure he knows how much you appreciate him. Just just a minute left here, Jack. Uh, I assume you have many more adventures in mind for this series. Is that correct? I do. So I'm putting the finishing touches on the third novel now, and I'll start the fourth one here in a couple weeks. But this third one is one I wanted to write since I was a, a little kid when I first read The Most Dangerous Game by Richard Connell when I was in sixth grade. And uh, he wrote that in 1924. And this third novel will explore the, the dark side of man through the characters from the first two books and with today's geopolitics as the backdrop. So I'm, uh, I'm very excited to get that one out there, and that'll be out uh, this uh, April 2020. Well, True Believer is the one that's available right now. The author is Jack Carr. He's a retired U.S. Navy Lieutenant Commander and Navy SEAL. Jack, we can't thank you enough. Really, it's impossible to thank you enough for your service to our country. And we certainly thank you for your time with us here today on Veterans Chronicles. No, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Retired U.S. Navy SEAL Jack Carr, retired U.S. Navy Lieutenant Commander. Again, the brand new book, True Believer. I'm Greg Columbus. This is Veterans Chronicles. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.